This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. In prison, the more of a celebrity you are, the less respect you get. You're judged on who you are as a person. And I like being judged like that because I feel like I'm a, I'm a pretty okay person. People liked me and... I was judged on that, not on the Bitcoin stuff. This is Death, Sex, and Money. He died doing what he loved. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Sometimes I don't know if I really, really love him or I have to love him. And need to talk about more. These people work very hard for their money. I'm in a sale. Charlie Shrim was a millionaire by the time he was 22 years old. Within a few years, he'd lost it all. I recently talked to him live on stage in Los Angeles. Charlie was an early Bitcoin entrepreneur. He co-founded a company called BitInstant, which helped users convert dollars into Bitcoin. Then someone started using that Bitcoin to do illegal things on the Internet. And Charlie knew about it. He was arrested and served a little over a year in prison after a plea deal. Now, Charlie is 27, and he's rebuilding, not just his bank account. He's left the Orthodox Jewish community he grew up in and lives in Florida with his now wife, Courtney. She met him when he was flying high, then visited him regularly in federal prison. When Charlie and I talked, she sat in the front row with their wedding just a few weeks away. Charlie, I want to start with the day you got out of prison. Can you just walk me through that day? Oh, my God. That day, that was a crazy day. So basically, what happens is you, pre- you prepare for this day like you kind of know about it for a few weeks in advance. You don't know when you're getting out until like a few weeks before. You kind of, I don't know, it. when you're in there for more than six months, you have to 
kind of institutionalize yourself. You have to forget about the world on the outside. You have to forget about, you have no internet, you have no communications. And so you're cut off from the whole world. And when you're about to get out, you're like about to enter back into society. And it was one of the scariest things in the world because even though I was only in there for a year, I became accustomed to, to prison life. I was used to it. I had my friends, I had my daily routine, I had my workouts. The world that I knew existed, existed in Lewisburg Federal Prison. That's, that's what my life was. But when you get out, um, what happens is you wake up early in the morning, they take all your stuff, um, you go into processing, we just, we're in this big room waiting for our people to pick us up. And like Courtney, I guess they were late or on the highway or something, and, and I was like freaking out, like I'm not getting out, or mm. the government's arresting me again, I didn't know what was going on. Um, and then finally, they said that they're here, and they pulled up in the parking lot, I just had a box of stuff. And I walk out in my, my like prison uniform because you get to keep it like in my sweatpants and a t-shirt and I'm all jacked up, and um, I have <laughs> I have my box and I walk out in the parking lot and I'm like let's get out of here before they change their mind, you know, and and then we drove off and I'm like, <sighs> okay, so I want to we'll get to how you came to prison, sure, but I want to go back to when you were first learning about money as a kid. You grew up in an Orthodox community. Your dad was a jeweler. Your mom, stay-at-home mom. Mm-hmm. How would you describe how you were taught about money when you were a kid? My father went out of his way to make sure that I always understood the value of a dollar. And he, we were we were upper middle class growing up in Brooklyn, and we had a nice house. And I never like had to struggle for food or anything like that. And I went to a good school. And um, my parents didn't. They didn't do anything to excess. They never just said, here's a bunch of money, do whatever you want. It was always like, I had to, I had to be accountable for, I had an allowance, like they gave me like 20 bucks a week or whatever it was for school, but I had to be accountable for that money. And if I spent it, they wouldn't, um, you know, give me more. And then what had happened was when I was in high school, you know, computers started getting big and stuff. Um, I started, people had, computer issues at home, like printers breaking or routers needed being reset or just things that they didn't know how to fix. And I realized that I can provide a good service just being someone that they could call on demand. And I charged with like 20 bucks an hour or whatever it was. And I just fix it. And I would be like the SY tech guy, just be uh, the guy. SY? Syrian, Syrian Jewish. That's like the, 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 the moniker we call ourselves, SYs. Uh, I would be like SY tech guy. Uh-huh. I used to go around and fix people's stuff. And one guy like paid me to like put a cell phone antenna on top of his roof. And, and I was like 15, 16 years old. And I started making like really good money. Like how much? Like in high school? A few hundred bucks a week. Yeah. It was like for, for someone, you know, in high school, like that was, I remember I bought my first car when I was a junior in high school. My parents didn't give me any, like they really, but there was a problem. You ready for this? Um, I got a credit card in the mail when I was like 18, like the day I turned 18, I got a credit. I was still in high school, had a $6,000 credit limit. And I was, I was taking people to Vegas. No, not really. But I was, I was spent like in the first month I spent it. And how did, like, where, where did you go? I don't How'd know. You spend like, it? like pizza stores and, and, uh, and just stuff. Like I just, I, I don't even know. What did I, what did I buy? I just, whatever. You couldn't drink at the time, right? I didn't start drinking until I was like 21. Um, but I just, just food and stuff for my friends. And I tried, oh, I took like, um, like lessons on how to fly a plane. So that cost a bunch of money. 
Um, uh-huh. Just stupid things, stupid yeah. things. Was it a secret <laughs> from your parents, your credit card? Yes and no. So they knew I had it, but they didn't realize like how much in debt I was getting into. So I got into a lot of debt. I got into like a lot of debt and, and I turned around and, and I was like graduating high school and I was like at least $10,000 in debt. And it was a lot for a kid. And I was freaking out. And my father found out because I was actually traveling on a birthright trip. So I went on one of those free trips to Israel. And he, I guess he got a letter in the mail and he opened it. And, and he saw that and he freaked out. And he said, I'm not bailing you out. Like, you have to figure out a way to pay for this. And I said, like, dad, like, I, he's like, I'm, make, I'm like, I'm making the minimum payments. He's like, but you're still spending the card. Like, so what my father did was... We sat down when I got back and he was furious. So he, we turned off the card. He took the card from me and I got a loan for the full amount on the card and he secured it against the house. So he helped me out in that respect. So the interest rate was, was lower than that of the card and I had set payments. It was like two, $300 a month and I had to make those payments. To your parents? No, to the credit card company. To the credit card company. Yeah, my parents okay. didn't pay it. Like I had to pay it off and I did. I paid it after two years. And since I was 18, I swore off credit cards. And even now, like, I have one card, but my limit is only at, like, $3,000. Really? I keep it really... I don't like debt. I don't like debt. I have this fear of debt because I got scarred when I was younger. You pay with debit cards for everything? Pretty much. Yeah, or Bitcoin or cash, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't like debt. So is that what caused you when you were a student at Brooklyn College to start the... You started a, a, a commerce company on the internet. Yeah. Was that to try to get out of this debt? That was part because I was I was like a closet rebel for my parents very early on. And I realized because they were very religious, like super religious. And I had they had like the from when I was born, the life was pre-set out for me. I would have like I would go to school, I would have my father's company, parents would buy me a house down the block. I'd have like I'd pick your wife from these ten girls. Like <laughs> Like, but it would be a good life. A lot of like my cousins, my, some of my old friends, they love it. You know, it's sheltered. You have your whole life set for you and stable. it's great, stable. But I wanted to have my own way. I wanted to, to make my own mistakes. I wanted to learn. I wanted to see where life would go. I wanted to leave Brooklyn. So it was a ticket out. It was a, t- it was a ticket out. So financial independence was a ticket out. And so one day my cousin over dinner was like, Hey, Charlie, um, you're really good at computers, right? And I said, yeah. He said, well, we have all this extra stuff in our warehouse. What if you build a website and you just sold it, like, and you can have it at cost, just get rid of it. I said, great. Like, That's I'm a good not, deal. I'm not doing anything <laughs> else, right? So I did that. I literally went to the warehouse with my laptop. I built a website called dailycheckout.com. And just I would just start, like, they'd have, like, a thousand of these, like, old digital cameras, and I'd sell them at cost and make, like, $2 on the shipping, right? So I'd sell it free with $5 shipping. My cost is a dollar, and the shipping was $2, so I made $2. Um, and it really took off. And so I found myself getting calls from a lot of other warehouses saying, hey, we have all this extra stuff. Can you sell it for us? So I didn't have to take on any risk. And it was really good. I mean, for a college, early college student, I was making, like, $600 a week. Which was, which was pretty good money um, back then. And so it still is good money. And so, I mean, I was making this money. I was saving it. I was paying off this debt. I was traveling. I had financial independence except for the fact that I was, like, living at home. And I could have moved out. Like, I had – it wasn't about the money, but I needed my parents – I always felt that I needed my parents' blessing. Like, I couldn't get over that, like – I couldn't get over that religious hurdle. I couldn't get over – I couldn't – 
fully leave and not look back because I knew once you once you leave my community, you can't go back. That's it. I was excommunicated. My parents had like a funeral for me. Um, legit, it's I was completely excommunicated. I didn't go to my sister's weddings. My parents won't be at my wedding. You you and I, but I made that decision. But it took me a long time to make it. Um, and I had a lot of resentment. I did. I was super angry. My parents visited me once in prison. They never came back. They never sent me money. They never, and I, and I held a lot of anger, but I realized that life is too short to hold resentment. So it strikes me that you're, there's two things happening in your life at a certain time. You're in Brooklyn College. You're trying to figure out your relationship to your family. You're trying to figure out how much distance you can allow from them for yeah. yourself. And you're also realizing that there's pathways for you to make more and more money. Yep. Did making more money and seeing that you could make a lot of money through Bitcoin and through BitInstant accelerate your pulling away from your family? It did. Um, all of a sudden, I went from having this one family, and now I have this new family, the Bitcoin community. I grew up in a very, like I was telling you earlier, in a very sheltered and closed-off community where um, it's, it's like ethnocentric. They believe that they are the best and everyone else is inferior to them. So it's the way I was raised, and I saw a lot of moral like like issues with that, and I really struggled with that, and that was one of the reasons I had to leave. Um, but the Bitcoin community was a, especially back then when it was still so small, it was a real-life working example of a community where everyone was equal because we all had our common agenda of revolutionizing the financial system. and Just that. Just that. Like, that was our agenda. <laughs> our agenda was that. didn't matter who you were, what you were, we were all a big family. What, during this period before you went to prison in, in Fortune magazine, your, your fiance is quoted as saying during that period, you were a little arrogant. Oh, I was more than a little arrogant, yeah. Um, what, like, in what way? Like, was it, were you arrogant because all of a sudden you felt like you had stumbled upon this thing that was increasing in value and you had a lot of money and you had figured this thing out before other people had? I don't know if it was like that. I just picture this. I was like 22 years old. I had half a million dollars in the bank, sitting in the bank. Like in a savings account? Like just in a checking account. Just whatever. Not even in a savings account. No. I had I had no expenses, like no overhead. I owned a nightclub. I lived above it. I was dating a beautiful girl. Like life was great. I acted I would walk around like my shit didn't stink. That's that's what it was. Coming up, Charlie finds out that someone is using his company to move money on Silk Road, the underground website where people bought drugs, fake IDs, and child porn. And Charlie reaches out to that person in writing. I wrote an email saying, like, I know you're on Silk Road. I know you're reselling these Bitcoins on Silk Road. Like, you better stop or else, you know, you better calm down. That's what I sent to him. And that email was the smoking gun because in that email, I admitted that I knew what he was doing. After having this conversation with Charlie and hearing all your reactions to our episodes about Alice the Shoplifter, we've been thinking a lot about money, class, and social mobility and how hard those things are to talk about. And you have been too. A listener who asked to go by Monica recently emailed us 
She said she identifies as upper middle class now, but she grew up in public housing and didn't always have enough to eat. I've been on both sides, she wrote. She continued, our class shapes our morals and views around money greatly. The idea of social class is taboo in the U.S., yet it determines so much about how we deal with and have access to money, sex, and death. So we want to hear how you think about class, social, economic, however you define it. Send us your stories about a time when you felt particularly aware of your class, whether it's a time when it changed or when you noticed how different you felt in relation to people around you. Send us an email or record a voice memo and send it to a special inbox, class at deathsexmoney.org. There's also a link on our Facebook page. Again, send your stories to us at class at deathsexmoney.org. On the next episode, I talk to journalist Lisa Ling about growing up on national television and what her childhood taught her about sex and relationships. Being raised primarily by a man made me very, you know, man-like in many ways. Like, I never really felt inhibited about just going up to a guy and asking him if he wanted to have a drink or whatever. Um, And I, I think that one of the reasons why I always was able to date the guys I wanted to date was because I didn't wait for them to ask me. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there.
This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Charlie Shrem was arrested by federal agents at JFK Airport in January 2014 when he was flying home into New York. He was charged with money laundering and operating an unlicensed money transmitting business. Before he was arrested, Charlie told me worries about legal trouble had already prompted him to shut down his company, BitInstant. My lawyers basically said, well, like, you know, the company is getting to a point where a lot of people are, you know, not a lot of people, but this one guy's buying Bitcoins and reselling them on Silk Road. And because that's what it was, this guy was a customer of ours and he bought Bitcoin and then he would then resell those Bitcoins on Silk Road. So then those people would then go buy drugs and stuff like that. And and I knew about it. I did. And I didn't really care enough. I was a young kid. I didn't really care enough to stop it because I was making money. And um, my lawyers eventually sent me a letter and they said, if you don't shut the company down right now, we can't represent you anymore. So we shut down the company that day. It was like July 3rd, 2013. And we put this site, we put this thing up on BitInstant and we said, sorry, like we're shut down. No one lost any money. It was it. And so I thought I was good because we shut down the company. My hand wasn't caught in the cookie jar. And then it wasn't like eight months later is when I got arrested. I do want to know a little bit about your time in prison. Sure. Um, Who were your friends? Oh, I had, there's no such thing as friends in prison. It's like, People who have aligned agendas to you. That's what it's more like. Because at the end of the day, like everyone is in it for themselves. Everyone wants to go home to their family. So you're, you don't really have friends. But you're living with a guy for a year next to him in the same bunk. Obviously, you're going to you know, become like a, have like a relationship with the guy. Like you're going to become friends with him. And when he has issues with his family or you do, you, you're confiding each other. Um, a lot of other people helped me out. Like there's this one guy, I remember every cell has a light and I like to read. I read 137 books that year. I read a lot. Um, I was reading, I don't have a, a book light. So I kept my cell light on and he wasn't, I forgot where he was. So I had the cell light on and all of a sudden this like huge guy, just like he's known as like a leader of some crew walks into my cell and he walks up really close to me and I'm laying on my top bunk, right? And he's this tall guy and he comes up right to my face and he says, hey, Shrem, you know, we're trying to sleep right now and your light's on really light, really bright and I'm like shaking, right? He goes, here, borrow my book light. Aww. Give it back to me when you get your own. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> but he was so not like, like it, it there are a lot of really good people in there who made mistakes. And when you're in prison, it's not like TV where everyone's like, oh, I'm innocent. Everyone tells you they're guilty. I'm guilty. Because to, to say you're innocent minimizes all that hard work you're doing to get out. I, I hate when people come to me now and they say, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't have been convicted and it was, you know, a stupid crime and the government. I, don't say that. I was guilty. I did my time. I worked my ass off to do that time. And I moved on now. I'm, I'm, I'm over it. Was it hard to walk away from being able to watch the valuation of Bitcoin yeah. and to know how much money you had and what your net worth was? Well, so I didn't have much because I got like the best. I got, the, I got Dominique Strauss-Kahn's lawyers. I got the best lawyers you can possibly get, but they cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
I walked into prison with $16,000 to my name. I was almost wiped clean. Um, so when I was in there, I told people, like, don't tell me what the price of Bitcoin is. Like, don't tell me that stuff. I don't want to know. You could tell me news and things, but don't. Like, some people were telling me, yeah, every day I'll email you or I'll, I'll send you a letter what the price of Bitcoin is. Like, no, don't do that. Sometimes I would ask, but other than that, don't. I don't want to know. Did you still have Bitcoins that you owned when you went into prison? Very few, like three or four. So you come out of prison. When did you look at your bank account? Like to see how so much money. I didn't you actually turn on a computer for th- two months, two and a half months. I didn't get a cell phone. I didn't turn on my iPhone. I didn't tell anyone I was out. I told you I was weird. Like I what wasn't was ready. What was it? What do you mean? Like what? Why the hesitancy to engage? I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to tell the world I was out. I wasn't ready to go on the computer, check my email, tens of thousands of emails waiting for me. Like I just, I wasn't ready. Um, I enjoyed waking up every morning, having the coffee. Um, I worked as a dishwasher at a restaurant. I had to maintain a real job for six months. And what counted as a real job? Anything that's not on the internet. Like a physical job that they can come and see you in rural Pennsylvania. The only job I can get was a dishwasher at a restaurant. And at the time, I was like, this sucks. But in hindsight, it was one of the best experiences. Like, I thought prison was humbling. Being a dishwasher 11 hours a day, going, being from a millionaire to sell, literally washing dishes for $8 an hour, and you couldn't quit. If I quit, I'd go right back to prison. I had to be there, and they would come visit me. They'd, they'd call the job, is, is Shrem there? They would call me in the middle of the night. Are you home? You had a curfew, 9 o'clock every night. They would call you. Where are you? Are you home? You had to be accountable. And I was, loved it. Was there behavior when it came to money that you didn't want to resume when you were reentering that you felt like was destructive or amoral before you went into prison? In prison, everything is given to you. You have shelter. You have food, you have a shower, you have water, you have your friends. You don't need to spend a dime. Everything you need to spend money on in prison is like extra. So you just kind of like go about your day and do your job and hang out with your friends and play cards and eat and work out. And you don't have to worry about money. You don't have to worry about paying bills. You don't have that electric bill coming. You're part of a social collective in there where you're all the same. I guess part of me didn't want to resume that normal life of like paying the bills, paying rent, paying a cell phone bill, being a slave to money again. I didn't want to go back to that. I'd be more over in prison than even when I was wealthy before. I became financially independent in prison because I didn't have any dependencies. I didn't have people that I had to pay for and I didn't have anything to pay for myself. I just wanted to be in my shell in my bubble for a little while longer in Pennsylvania where no one knew who I was and life was just easy and good and not stressful. Um, I asked you backstage how many Bitcoins you own. You, it's the current value is $4,000. You wouldn't tell me. Yep. Um, but I want to put a target on my back. <laughs> <laughs> when you think, like when you're like thinking in the back of your mind, like how much money do I have? Like when you're thinking, you know, in one of those moments where you're like, no, 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 doing the math, what's my net worth? What percentage is in actual dollars and what percentage is in like Bitcoin? Oh, good Bitcoin? question. So I'm trying to do where it's, I'm investing, I'm taking a lot of Bitcoin and selling it as the price goes up and putting it into real estate. Um, 
especially down in Florida where we live, trying to get like rental properties to rent out to, to renters, obviously. Um, <laughs> and so I would, I, I'm comfortable where it's, where it's like uh, 33% fiat, 33% Bitcoin, 33% property and real estate. That's where you're comfortable. That's where I'm trying to get to. I'm, I'm, about, I'm about that. I'm about that. Because then if Bitcoin goes to zero, which it's an experiment, it could, um, I won't be on the street. A lot of people have like 95% of their wealth in Bitcoin and great for them. I'm happy. But I, I got to be smart. I'm getting married. We'll have children eventually. I can't, you know, I can't do that. I can't, take, I can't speculate with my rent. One final question from me before we part. You're getting married in four weeks. Do you plan on combining your finances as a family or keeping yeah. them separate? We, are, we already have joint accounts. Yeah, we already, uh, it's our money. Um, we, we have friends who are like engaged and stuff and money is like a huge taboo. They're afraid to talk about it. They don't know how to deal with it between each other, joint bank accounts, like whose money? Is it my money? Is it your money? It's a, and it's a reason for a lot of divorces. And so we are completely open with each other about it. She knows how much money we have at any given time. She has access to, to all of it if she needs it, God forbid. Like, she has her own Bitcoin. Yeah. And we have a good system, and it works. And so there's no, it's all fair, and it, it's equal, and we, we don't worry about it. And so, but she's great, though. She'll go into a store and spend $100 and get 15 outfits. I don't know how she does it. So I, <laughs> I don't know how you do that. That's Charlie Shrim. He's an executive with a technology company now. And based on my time with him, he's also regularly monitoring the value of Bitcoin on his phone. Charlie and Courtney got married in September after relocating their wedding because of Hurricane Irma. Thanks to the team at the Annenberg Space for Photography for hosting us in L.A. We recorded this conversation with Charlie there in conjunction with an exhibit called Generation Wealth. That's a collection of photographer Lauren Greenfield's work that explores the changing ways that people across the globe are showing off their wealth. It's really great. You can see that exhibit in New York City at the International Center of Photography until January 7th. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money. And don't forget to send us your stories about class and the moments when you've been most aware of your class status. Email your story or send us a voice memo to class at deathsexmoney.org. There may not have been actual money in prison, but Charlie says there was a system of currency based on packets of mackerel. And things are denominated in mackerel, like a haircut is two macs. Um, uh, if you want to buy a pie of pizza, this guy makes you pizza in the microwave, it's six macs. You get to hire a personal trainer. Really? Yeah, you can hire a personal trainer for like a mac a week, uh, two macs a week. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.